0: part one chapter twenty of life and times of frederick douglas by frederick douglas this librivox recording is in the public domain part one chapter twenty apprenticeship life well dear reader i am not as you have probably inferred a loser by the general upster described in the foregoing chapter the little domestic revolution notwithstanding the sudden snub it got by the treachery of somebody did not, after all, end so disastrously as when in the iron cage at Easton I conceived it would. The prospect from that point did look about as dark as any that ever cast its gloom over the vision of the anxious outlooking human spirit. All's well that ends well. My affectionate friends, Henry and John Harris, are still with Mr. Freeland. Charles Roberts and Henry Bailey are safe at their homes. I have not, therefore, anything to regret on their account. Their masters have mercifully forgiven them, probably on the ground suggested in the spirited little speech of mrs Freeland, made to me just before leaving for the jail. My friends had nothing to regret either, for while they were watched more closely, they were doubtless treated more kindly than before, and got new assurances that they should some day be legally emancipated, provided their behavior from that time forward should make them deserving. Not a blow was struck any one of them. As for Master Freeland, good soul, he did not believe we were intending to run away at all. Having given, as he thought, no occasion to his boys to leave him, he could not think it probable that they had entertained a design so grievous. This, however, was not the view taken of the matter by Maz Billy, as we used to call the soft-spoken but crafty and resolute Mr. William Hamilton. He had no doubt that the crime had been meditated and regarding me as the instigator of it, he frankly told Master Thomas that he must remove me from that neighborhood, or he would shoot me. He would not have one so dangerous as Frederick, tampering with his slaves. William Hamilton was not a man whose threat might be safely disregarded. I have no doubt that, had his warning been disregarded, he would have proved as good as his word. He was furious at the thought of such a piece of high-handed theft as we were about to perpetrate, the stealing of our own bodies and souls. The feasibility of the plan, too, could the first steps have been taken, was marvellously plain. Besides, this was a new idea, this use of the bay. Slaves escaping, until now, had taken to the woods, they had never dreamed of profaning and abusing the waters of the noble Chesapeake, by making them the highway from slavery to freedom. Here was a broad road leading to the destruction of slavery, which had hitherto been looked upon as a wall of security by the slaveholders. But Master Billy could not get Mr. Freeland to see matters precisely as he did. Nor could he get Master Thomas, excited as he was, to so see them the latter i must say it to his credit showed much humane feeling and atoned for much that had been harsh cruel and unreasonable in his former treatment of me and of others my cousin tom told me that while i was in jail master thomas was very unhappy and that the night before his going up to release me he had walked the floor nearly all night evincing great distress that very tempting offers had been made to him by the negro traders but he had rejected them all saying that money could not tempt him to sell me to the far south i can easily believe all this for he seemed quite reluctant to send me away at all he told me that he only consented to do so because of the very strong prejudice against me in the neighbourhood and that he feared for my safety if i remained there thus after three years spent in the country roughing it in the field and experiencing all sorts of hardships, I was again permitted to return to Baltimore, the very place, of all others short of a free state, where I most desired to live. The three years spent in the country had made some difference in me and in the household of Master Hugh. Little Tommy was no longer Little Tommy, and I was not the slender lad who had left the eastern shore just three years before. The loving relations between Master Tommy and myself were broken up he was no longer dependent on me for protection but felt himself a man and had other and more suitable associates in childhood he had considered me scarcely inferior to himself certainly quite as good as any other boy with whom he played but the time had come when his friend must be his slave so we were cold to each other and parted it was a sad thing to me that loving each other as we had done we must now take different roads. To him, a thousand avenues were open. Education had made him acquainted with all the treasures of the world, and liberty had flung open the gates thereunto. But I, who had attended him seven years, who had watched over him with the care of a big brother, fighting his battles in the street, and shielding him from harm, to an extent which induced his mother to say, Oh, Tommy is always safe when he is with Freddy. I must be confined to a single condition. He had grown and become a man. I, though grown to the stature of manhood, must all my life remain a minor, a mere boy. Thomas Old, Jr., obtained a situation on board the brig Tweed, and went to sea. I have since heard of his death. There were few persons to whom I was more sincerely attached than to him. Very soon after I went to Baltimore to live, Master Hugh succeeded in getting me hired to Mr. William Gardiner, an extensive shipbuilder on Fells Point. I was placed there to learn to caulk, a trade of which I already had some knowledge gained while in Mr. Hugh ald's shipyard. Gardiner's, however, proved a very unfavorable place for the accomplishment of the desired object. Mr. Gardiner was that season engaged in building two large man-of-war vessels, professedly for the Mexican government. These vessels were to be launched in the month of July of that year, and in failure thereof Mr. Gardner would forfeit a very considerable sum of money. So, when I entered the shipyard all was hurry and driving. There were in the yard about one hundred men. Of these, seventy or eighty were regular carpenters, privileged men. There was no time for a raw hand to learn anything. Every man had to do that which he knew how to do and in entering the yard, Mr. Gardner had directed me to do whatever the carpenters told me to do. This was placing me at the beck and call of about seventy-five men. I was to regard all these as my masters. Their word was to be my law. My situation was a trying one. I was called a dozen ways in the space of a single minute. I needed a dozen pairs of hands. Three or four voices would strike my ear at the same moment. It was, Fred! come here and help me to cant this timber here fred come carry this timber yonder fred bring that roller here fred go get a fresh can of water fred come help saw off the end of this timber fred go quick and get the crowbar fred hold on the end of this fall fred go to the blacksmith's shop and get a new punch Halloo, fred run and bring me a cold chisel I say, Fred, bear a hand and get up a fire under the steam box as quick as lightning. Hello, nigger. Come turn this grindstone. Come, come, move, move, and bows this timber forward. I say, darky, blast your eyes. Why don't you heat up some pitch? Halloo, halloo, halloo! Three voices at the same time. Come here. Go there. Hold on where you are. Damn you. If you move, I'll knock your brains out. Such, my dear reader, is a glance at the school, which was mine during the first eight months of my stay at Gardiner's shipyard. At the end of eight months, Master Hugh refused longer to allow me to remain with Gardiner. The circumstance which led to this refusal was the committing of an outrage upon me by the white apprentices of the shipyard. The fight was a desperate one, and I came out of it shockingly mangled. I was cut and bruised in sundry places, and my left eye was nearly knocked out of its socket. The facts which led to this brutal outrage upon me illustrate a phase of slavery which was destined to become an important element in the overthrow of the slave system, and I may therefore state them with some minuteness. That phase was this, the conflict of slavery with the interests of white mechanics and laborers. In the country, this conflict was not so apparent but in cities such as baltimore richmond new orleans mobile etc it was seen pretty clearly the slaveholders with a craftiness peculiar to themselves by encouraging the enmity of the poor laboring white man against the blacks succeeded in making the said white man almost as much a slave as the black slave himself the difference between the white slave and the black slave was this the latter belonged to one slaveholder while the former belonged to the slaveholders collectively the white slave had taken from him by indirection what the black slave had taken from him directly and without ceremony both were plundered and by the same plunderers the slave was robbed by his master of all his earnings above what was required for his bare physical necessities and the white laboring man was robbed by the slave system of the just results of his labor because he was flung into competition with a class of laborers who worked without wages. The slaveholders blinded them to this competition by keeping alive their prejudice against the slaves as men, not against them as slaves. They appealed to their pride, often denouncing emancipation as tending to place the white working man on an equality with Negroes, and by this means they succeeded in drawing off the minds of the poor whites from the real fact, that by the rich slave-master they were already regarded as but a single remove from equality with the slave. The impression was cunningly made that slavery was the only power that could prevent the laboring white man from falling to the level of the slave's poverty and degradation. To make this enmity deep and broad between the slave and the poor white man, the latter was allowed to abuse and whip the former without hindrance. But, as I have said, this state of affairs prevailed mostly in the country in the city of baltimore there were not unfrequent murmurs that educating slaves to be mechanics might in the end give slave-masters power to dispense altogether with the services of the poor white man but with characteristic dread of offending the slaveholders these poor white mechanics in Mr. Gardner's shipyard, instead of applying the natural, honest remedy for the apprehended evil and objecting at once to work there by the side of slaves, made a cowardly attack upon the free colored mechanics, saying they were eating the bread which should be eaten by American freemen, and swearing that they, the mechanics, would not work with them. The feeling was really against having their labor brought into competition with that of the colored freeman and aimed to prevent him from serving himself, in the evening of life, with the trade with which he had served his master, during the more vigorous portion of his days. Had they succeeded in driving the black freemen out of the shipyard, they would have determined also upon the removal of the black slaves. The feeling was, about this time, very bitter toward all colored people in Baltimore, 1836, and they, free and slave, suffered all manner of insult and wrong. Until a very little while before I went there, white and black carpenters worked side by side in the shipyards of Mr. Gardiner, Mr. Duncan, Mr. Walter Price, and Mr. Robb. Nobody seemed to see any impropriety in it. Some of the blacks were first-rate workmen, and were given jobs requiring the highest skill. All at once, however, the white carpenters swore that they would no longer work on the same stage with Negroes. Taking advantage of the heavy contract resting upon Mr. Gardner to have the vessels for Mexico ready to launch in July, and of the difficulty of getting other hands at that season of the year, they swore that they would not strike another blow for him unless he would discharge his free-colored workmen now although this movement did not extend to me in form it did reach me in fact the spirit which it awakened was one of malice and bitterness toward colored people generally and i suffered with the rest and suffered severely my fellow-apprentices very soon began to feel it to be degrading to work with me they began to put on high looks and to talk contemptuously and maliciously of the niggers saying that they would take the country, and that they ought to be killed. Encouraged by workmen, who, knowing me to be a slave, made no issue with Mr. Gardner about my being there, these young men did their utmost to make it impossible for me to stay. They seldom called me to do anything without coupling the call with a curse, and Edward North, the biggest in everything, rascality included, ventured to strike me, whereupon I picked him up and threw him into the dock whenever any of them struck me, I struck back again, regardless of consequences. I could manage any of them singly, and so long as I could keep them from combining, I got on very well. In the conflict which ended my stay at Mr. Gardner's, I was beset by four of them at once, Ned North, Ned Hayes, Bill Stewart, and Tom Humphreys. Two of them were as large as myself, and they came near killing me in broad daylight. One came in front, armed with a brick. There was one at each side and one behind, and they closed up all around me. I was struck on all sides, and while I was attending to these in front, I received a blow on my head from behind, dealt with a heavy hand-spike. I was completely stunned by the blow, and fell heavily on the ground among the timbers. Taking advantage of my fall, they rushed upon me, and began to pound me with their fists with a view of gaining strength i let them lay on for a while after i came to myself they had done me little damage so far but finally getting tired of that sport i gave a sudden surge and despite their weight i rose to my hands and knees just as i did this one of their number planted a blow with his boot in my left eye which for a time seemed to have burst my eyeball when they saw my eye completely closed my face covered with blood and I, staggering under the stunning blows they had given me, they left me. As soon as I gathered strength, I picked up the handspike and madly enough attempted to pursue them, but there the carpenters interfered and compelled me to give up my pursuit. It was impossible to stand against so many. Dear reader, you can hardly believe this statement, but it is true and therefore I write it down that no fewer than fifty white men stood by and saw this brutal and shameful outrage committed and not a man of them all interposed a single word of mercy there were four against one and that one's face was beaten and battered most horribly and no one said that is enough but some cried out kill him kill him kill the damn nigger knock his brains out he struck a white person i mention this inhuman outcry to show the character of the men and the spirit of the times at gardiner's shipyard and indeed in baltimore generally in eighteen thirty six as i look back to this period i am almost amazed that i was not murdered outright so murderous was the spirit which prevailed there on two other occasions while there i came near losing my life on one of these i was driving bolts in the hold through the keelson with haze in its course the bolt bent Hayes cursed me and said that it was my blow which bent the bolt. I denied this, and charged it upon him. In a fit of rage he seized an adze and darted toward me. I met him with a maul and parried his blow, or I should have lost my life. After the united attack of North, Stuart, Hayes, and Humphreys, finding that the carpenters were as bitter toward me as the apprentices, and that the latter were probably set on by the former, I found my only chance for life was in flight i succeeded in getting away without an additional blow to strike a white man was death by lynch law in gardner's shipyard nor was there much of any other law toward the colored people at that time in any other part of maryland after making my escape from the shipyard i went straight home and related my story to master hugh and to his credit i say it that his conduct though he was not a religious man was every way more humane than that of his brother thomas when i went to him in a somewhat similar plight from the hands of his brother edward covey master hugh listened attentively to my narration of the circumstances leading to the ruffianly assault and gave many evidences of his strong indignation of what was done he was a rough but manly-hearted fellow and at this time his best nature showed itself the heart of my once kind mistress sophia was again melted in pity towards me my puffed-out eye and my scarred and blood-covered face moved the dear lady to tears she kindly drew a chair by me and with friendly and consoling words she took water and washed the blood from my face no mother's hand could have been more tender than hers she bound up my head and covered my wounded eye with a lean piece of fresh beef it was almost compensation for all i suffered that it occasioned the manifestation, once more, of the originally characteristic kindness of my mistress. Her affectionate heart was not yet dead, though much hardened by time and circumstances. As for Master Hugh, he was furious, and gave expression to his feelings in the form of speech usually in that locality. He poured curses on the whole of the shipyard company, and swore that he would have satisfaction. His indignation was really strong and healthy, but unfortunately it resulted from the thought that his rights of property in my person had not been respected more than from any sense of the outrage perpetrated upon me as a man i had reason to think this from the fact that he could himself beat and mangle when it suited him to do so bent on having satisfaction as he said just as soon as i got a little better of my bruises master hugh took me to esquire watson's office on bond street fells point with a view to procuring the arrest of those who had assaulted me he gave to the magistrate an account of the outrage as i had related it to him and seemed to expect that a warrant would at once be issued for the arrest of the lawless ruffians mr watson heard all that he had to say then coolly inquired mr auld who saw this assault of which you speak it was done sir in the presence of a shipyard full of hands sir said mr watson i am sorry but i cannot move in this matter except upon the oath of white witnesses but here's the boy look at his head and face said the excited master hugh they show what has been done but watson insisted that he was not authorized to do anything unless white witnesses of the transaction would come forward and testify to what had taken place he could issue no warrant on my word against white persons and if i had been killed in the presence of a thousand blacks their testimony combined would have been insufficient to condemn a single murderer master hugh was compelled to say for once that this state of things was too bad and he left the office of the magistrate disgusted of course it was impossible to get any white man to testify against my assailants the carpenters saw what was done but the actors were but the agents of their malice and did only what the carpenters sanctioned they had cried with one accord kill the nigger kill the nigger even those who may have pitied me if any such were among them lacked the moral courage to volunteer their evidence the slightest show of sympathy or justice toward a person of color was denounced as abolitionism and the name of abolitionist subjected its hearing to frightful liabilities damn abolitionists and kill the niggers were the watchwords of the foul-mouthed ruffians of those days nothing was done and probably would not have been had i been killed in the affray the laws and the morals of the christian city of baltimore afforded no protection to the sable denizens of that city master hugh on finding that he could get no redress for the cruel wrong withdrew me from the employment of mr gardiner and took me into his own family mrs Ald kindly taking care of me and dressing my wounds until they were healed and i was ready to go to work again while i was on the eastern shore master hugh had met with reverses which overthrew his business and had given up shipbuilding in his own yard on the city block and was now acting as foreman for mr walter price the best that he could do for me was to take me into mr price's yard and afford me the facilities there for completing the trade which i began to learn at gardener's here i rapidly became expert in the use of caulkers tools and in the course of a single year i was able to command the highest wages paid to journeymen caulkers in baltimore the reader will observe that i was now of some pecuniary value to my master during the busy season i was bringing six and seven dollars per week i have sometimes brought him as much as nine dollars a week for wages were a dollar and a half per day after learning to calk, i sought my own employment made my own contracts and collected my own earnings giving master hugh no trouble in any part of the transactions to which i was a party here then were better days for the eastern shore slave I was free from the vexatious assaults of the apprentices at gardeners, free from the perils of plantation life, and once more in favourable condition to increase my little stock of education, which had been at a dead stand since my removal from Baltimore. I had on the eastern shore been only a teacher, when in company with other slaves. But now there were coloured persons here who could instruct me. Many of the young calkers could read, write, and cipher some of them had high notions about mental improvement and the free ones on fells point organized what they called the east baltimore mental improvement society to this society notwithstanding it was intended that only free persons should attach themselves i was admitted and was several times assigned a prominent part in its debates i owe much to the society of these young men the reader already knows enough of the ill effects of good treatment on a slave to anticipate what was now the case in my improved condition. It was not long before I began to show signs of disquiet with slavery, and to look around for means to get out of it by the shortest route. I was living among free men, and was in all respects equal to them by nature and attainments. Why should I be a slave? There was no reason why I should be the thrall of any man. Besides, I was now getting, as I have said, a dollar and fifty cents per day i contracted for it worked for it collected it it was paid to me and it was rightfully my own and yet upon every returning saturday night this money my own hard earnings every cent of it was demanded of me and taken from me by master hugh he did not earn it he had no hand in earning it why then should he have it i owed him nothing he had given me no schooling and i had received from him only my food and raiment and for these my services were supposed to pay from the first the right to take my earnings was the right of the robber he had the power to compel me to give him the fruits of my labor and this power was his only right in the case i became more and more dissatisfied with this state of things and in so becoming i only gave proof of the same human nature which every reader of this chapter in my life slaveholder or non-slaveholder is conscious of possessing to make a contented slave you must make a thoughtless one. It is necessary to darken his moral and mental vision, and, as far as possible, to annihilate his power of reason. He must be able to detect no inconsistencies in slavery. The man who takes his earnings must be able to convince him that he has a perfect right to do so. It must not depend upon mere force. The slave must know no higher law than his master's will. The whole relationship must not only demonstrate to his mind its necessity, but its absolute rightfulness. If there be one crevice through which a single drop can fall, it will certainly rust off the slave's chain. End of chapter twenty.